0: to the Grace-Based Family Podcast. This is Dr. Tim Kimmel. For over 40 years, our ministry has been teaching people all over the globe how to
1: turn God's act of grace into the defining feature of their closest relationships. We're excited for you to listen in on the conversation.
0: We're here today with Rustin Rossello. Rustin has a degree in business from ASU, that's Arizona State, and a master's in theology from Phoenix Seminary. Rustin and his wife, Jamie, have been married since 2007 and they have a son and daughter, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. And he is here today to talk about a topic that a lot of Christians avoid or we don't discuss. And we're talking about addiction today, Christians specifically and addiction. And um, Rustin is a pastor, a teaching pastor and campus pastor at Scottsdale Bible Church. But why we're having you on today is to really share your story yeah. and to open up conversation um, about addiction and Christians and what that looks like. So why mm-hmm. don't you kind of yeah. tell us your your life story yeah. in three minutes? We'll no, do just a kidding. quick flyover.
1: <laughs> um, you know, I'm I'm I think like a, a lot of people my age. I'll turn 41 in May, uh, so kind of grew up in that. Christian culture of the 90s was kind of when I was doing junior high and stuff like that. So grew up going to church, uh, got to the place in my life, probably uh, early college where, you know, going through, I grew up a a little kind of sideways. I was molested at five. And so I grew up kind of alone. um, Didn't share that with anybody. So I grew up with kind of this intrinsic sense that um something was wrong with me so my my place to solve that was uh, i was going to get everybody to like me i was the class clown i was the athlete and um went through all these different ways where i worked really really hard to try and just earn people's approval so that whole uh approval seeking fear of man things like that were, were big for me And then um, I discovered early college, hey, you know, alcohol really makes a lot of these things kind of go away. And so I can remember from the time I picked up my first drink going, I really like this. Like there was a sense of far more than this tastes good, but this feels good. Even though I wasn't drunk at the time, there was a sense of soothing that it sort of brought. And so the wheels continued to kind of roll forward. Uh, I, I joke that I worked in the car business when I was about 20 years old, and I was the youngest guy on the lot by about 15 years. So I had all these older brothers that kind of taught me how to have a good day, how to have a bad day, and alcohol was involved in both. So I joke that I got my uh, undergrad in alcoholism at, uh in the car business, I got a master's degree at ASU, and then whatever that didn't finish. I got my phd in commercial real estate here in the phoenix area (laughs) so um i I did a lot of it and i I got to a point i got married um and just to a precious christian woman who i met at a place where all of us meet great christian women a hole in the wall tequila bar in scottsdale (laughs) arizona and um the first two and a half years were a train wreck Um, i was holding it together with good behavior and the wheels just came off and so about two and a half years in about two years in she's just i was drinking myself to sleep Because the shame, and shame is, I think, very centric to addiction, of the kind of husband that I was relative to the husband I wanted to be uh, just ended up kind of just tanking me on a regular basis. And so I couldn't sync it up and I couldn't seem to improve, so my coping mechanism was alcohol. And so I'd become a, a pretty aggressive alcoholic at that point, unbeknownst to me. So about eight months before I got sober, uh, my wife had kind of turned me over to the Lord. At that point in the in our marriage, uh, I was crying myself or I, she was crying herself to sleep every night. I was drinking myself to sleep every night. So she was reading uh, Stormy O'Martian's The Power of a Praying Wife and just went, all right, Lord, he's all yours. I'm not going to try and change him anymore. And she was so desperate. She prayed this kind of extravagant prayer, Lord, change his heart or get me out of this marriage. And that was kind of it. She tucked herself into the Lord. She stopped bugging me about my drinking. And I just thought, man, we finally figured it out. She's leaving me alone. We found a rhythm. And I can remember a distinct moment where I was driving home from lunch. And uh, at the time I was working for a small nonprofit where, you know, it was run by my father-in-law. So having a drink at lunch, wasn't super, there was like four of us in the office. And so um, it wasn't a huge deal. And um, most people didn't notice me. I kind of flew under the radar. And um, I can remember getting on to Scottsdale Road. I was just south of Thunderbird, headed north, back to the office. The office was actually right here, near your guys' office. It was just down the street. And um, I can remember sitting there and going, oh, I don't have control of this anymore. Alcohol's at the wheel, and at the best, I'm in the back seat along for the ride. And so <clears throat> as that continued for eight months, um, I lost command. And I was drunk for about eight straight months. I was drink aggressively during the day and the night, fall asleep, wake up, horrifically hungover when the hangover would clear, and I would finally start to kind of experience uh, sobriety again in an instant. Um, As soon as I was feeling sober again, I would turn it right back on. And that was eight straight months. And so fast forward to June of uh, what would be 2009, it's all coming unraveled. I was at the point in my alcoholism where big nights out were anywhere from 15, 20, 25 drink nights. And so I would start kind of early afternoon, evening, and just power through until I fell asleep. So I would say, I no longer had a break. I had an accelerator. And the only way that I stopped drinking was when I ran into something socially where I couldn't explain it away. And I had to stop for an evening or I ran out of gas and just fell asleep. So Big night ensued. We were out drinking, came back to the house, Uh, a bunch of people were at the house and um, I ended up sleeping with somebody who wasn't my wife. Mm -hmm. And everybody's bottom is really different. Um, For some people, it's really big. For some people, they're relatively high bottom. And for me, I woke up the next morning and what had happened, and this is what I think really hit me as I started to move into what was going to be a very life-changing time, I basically had to figure out um, how to live with who i'd become so i would say the first miracle that god really worked in my life it wasn't even getting me sober it was he stripped all the calluses off my heart that i had been sort of building for about 10 years as i was running from god so in the midst of that i all of a sudden had this tender exposed heart when i woke up on the bathroom floor the morning after I like had the tender heart of the sweet little Rustin Rosello who used to go to Grace Community Church Mm -hmm. and just long to please God, please people really walk in a, a way that was honoring to the Lord. And I walked away from that in kind of early high school. So it was about a decade. I kind of walked away from the Lord in 17 and 27, found myself on this bathroom floor. And honestly, I was at a point where it was like, okay, I don't know how to do life with God. I don't know how to do life without God. That's pretty clear. Um, I think I'm just done doing life. And I think a lot of people who hit bottom, they sort of wrestle with the fact that they don't really know how to do life anymore. And so uh, for me, I had no doubt that Jesus Christ was my Lord and Savior. I just didn't want to be here on earth anymore. So we did that on the bathroom floor. We kind of did that suicidal wrestling match where I was like, I'm I'm just ready to come home. And what transpired from there was this steady process of walking it out and, and trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now? Um, and I was kind of ready to come home. And the first conversation the Lord and I had had a a long time was him saying, Hey, give me one more chance. It was just kind of a a heartfelt conversation between me and Jesus. And we had chatted periodically through the 10 years, but it wasn't anything meaningful and it wasn't a father and son. It was more the son just like, Hey, I know you're out there. Thanks for keeping an eye on me. And so as we hit that point, um, what I felt the lord kind of calling me to or nudging my heart on was hey give me one more chance and i just remember going no like mm-hmm. i'm you're completely out of chances so as we did that um the, the next thing i i remember feeling was um, we're gonna do it my way this time and what hit me and i think this is true for a lot of addicts is it had always been higher power plus so it had always been for me jesus plus money jesus plus a job jesus plus sex or alcohol or whatever the thing was for the season And that reality was done. I couldn't make any of that work anymore. And that was pretty clear. So as that hit, um, I had to walk it out. So made it through the weekend. Wife came home from her trip. The guilt and the shame was overwhelming. And um, that Monday morning, because I kind of gave God three days. So I was like, I'll give you three days, which seems super fair because it took me 10 years to get into the mess. I'll give you three days to fix (laughs) it. And um so as we started to walk through that, um, I got up Monday morning, went to my first AA meeting, got to my office, Googled Scottsdale AA. I just knew I had an alcohol problem. I didn't know what to do. Mm-hmm. And I remember Alcoholics Anonymous was for weird people.
2: Yeah,
1: And I felt pretty weird at that time. Mm-hmm. So I was like, all right, I'm, I'm pretty desperate. Let's give this a shot. And so I walked into my first AA meeting at 7 a.m. Uh, ironically, it's just down the street from where I work now at the church. And, um, 150 year old woman with bright orange hair walked up and was like, patted me on the back. (laughs) It's like, Hey, come on in. We won't bite. And I was like, wow, it's that obvious that I'm either a need to be here or B that I'm new. (laughs) So the preamble for every AA meeting has been the same for a really long time. They read a section uh, out of the big book that starts with the, uh, kind of the famous words. Rarely have we seen a person fail who has thoroughly followed our path. So Mm -hmm. they do all that. (laughs) It still gets me choked Mm -hmm. up because it's such sweet words, Mm -hmm. but, um, they read the preamble, and then they asked the famous question, is this anybody's first AA meeting? I was like, oh, gosh, yeah, that's me. So I raised my hand, and they said, oh, great, um, did you drink today? And I said, no, I haven't had a drink since Friday night. And this was Monday morning. And uh, and they said, well, great, come on up and get a chip. And I'm like, I don't know what a chip is. And so they gave me this crappy little plastic chip that says 24 hours on it, and it had Serenity Prayer on the back. So I jammed it in my pocket, went to walk out, and um, a guy patted me on the back and said, hey, man, we'll see you tomorrow. And I was like, oh, is this not like a once a week thing? And he goes, I don't know how often did you drink? And I go, I drink every day. He goes, great. We'll see you tomorrow. And I was like, oh, shoot. Like, it's going to be really hard yeah. to hide from my wife. Yeah. So 1 o'clock in the afternoon, my wife walked into my office and uh, closed the door and said, something happened. And you're going to tell me what it is right now. And I went, well, here we go. And we proceeded to have the toughest conversation you can have with a spouse. And so uh, she said, What's going on? And I said, quite simply, um, Well, I lied to you. I didn't go to a Bible study this morning like I told you I did. I went to uh, my first AA meeting and I'm an alcoholic. And I hadn't said it out loud. And so it was the first time I had said it. And as soon as I said it, just as much as I remember thinking the first time I had that drink, Ooh, this feels really good, I had the same level of confidence when I made that statement that it was true. I'm an alcoholic. So it didn't take but a couple of minutes and she, uh, what she said next was, and I'm so proud of you. And I just mm-hmm. remember going, "Yeah." well, my next statement was, hey, before you go getting all proud of me, let's talk about what me being an alcoholic for the, for, for the last two and a half years of our marriage has looked like. Mm-hmm. And it didn't take long. She said, you know, have you ever cheated on me? And I said, I have, and you should run from me. Mm-hmm. And what she said next uh, just changed my life forever. Because of, I think, what had happened to me as a kid, I'd never really faced unmerited, undeserved grace and forgiveness, not that I felt like I'd earned it, I would have never said what I was doing wasn't sinful or wrong. But I would have come up with some sort of a concoction of but God understands why I am the way I am. I don't know that I could have even connected it to childhood or things like that, or the fear that I grew up in or just feeling maladjusted through so much of me being young. But what ended up taking place in that moment was, I looked at her and told her to run and and she looked at me and said, Where do you want me to go? You're all I have. And then what she said was, I don't know what we'll look like when this is over, but we're going to get you healthy and we're going to get through this. Wow. And the like profound reality that I hit that day was, if this is the type of love and forgiveness that God's kids are capable of, mm. I really do think Jesus Christ might be the God of my wildest dreams. Wow. That's
2: so cool. And
1: we started to walk it out. It, it's been a train wreck. I mean, it's hard, right? Sure. Like you go through trauma, you go through things. It's not always the Easter morning. It's a lot of Good Fridays. It's a lot of death and, and then resurrection. But the death part just feels like it takes forever, where parts of you are dying, and the Lord is trying to bring to life something new that looks far more like him and far less like you. And addiction is really that rebirth process of completely relearning how to walk through your life in such a way where I could grow into the husband that she needed me to be, a process I'm still aggressively working at because, you know, marriage in and of itself is so hard. You guys do this all the time. I think Tim's definition of love is so great, but it was effectively kind of what we came to. It's like, it's basically, it's going to cost you to the benefit of another. Uh-huh. So the process of marriage, when you come into a covenant with a spouse, it is basically two selfish people doing a selfless thing. So Walking that road out, there is no single tool the Lord has used more aggressively to shape me than my marriage, starting from that moment and then Mm -hmm. forward. And so as we started to walk that out, um, that was 13 years ago. And so it has just been an ongoing process of continuing to pursue a sober life, um, Mm -hmm. continuing to pursue first and foremost the Lord and his shaping effect on me. But I think a lot of times people will ask, like, do you feel like people are born addicts? Do you feel like people are this? Do you feel like people are that? And we can certainly cover those questions today. But the reality for me was, you know, the way that, that AA has scoped my relationship to alcohol is with the analogy of an allergy. So it'd be like if you take somebody and if you were gluten intolerant and I was like, hey, Michelle, here's a cinnamon roll right? Just go ahead. Now we could both eat one and I'd be fine. All right. Fine being a relative measure because I tend to overdo anything you put in front of me. So I like to keep my weight between a real tight range of about 175 and 245. (laughs) So it would affect me as well. But if you were gluten intolerant, it would completely destroy you, Mm -hmm. like wreck your stomach. You know, you would basically get the flu for a couple of days and I'd be okay. And if you reverse that and you put a glass of whiskey in front of both of us, you could sip on that and be okay. And it would trigger an allergy in me that would lead me right back down a road Mm -hmm. that could get really tough. When I understand that allergy in me, that for all the years where I tried to use every trick in the book, I'm just going to drink beer. I'm not going to start drinking till three. I'm only going to do this only on the weekends, only here, only there. None of them really worked because I have an emotional Allergy to alcohol, where mm-hmm. I connect to it in such a powerful way that I'm going to it for things that you shouldn't go to earthly things for. Yeah, but it's an overpowering thing for me. So that's what the big book tells me is that alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful, mm-hmm. and it has been all those things in my life. So a way I articulate my drinking because a lot of people say like, well, do you think you'll ever drink again, or is it hard for you? Um, alcohol genuinely stopped working for me, and the reality I have come to is. Whether I ever had the ability to drink uh, in a healthy manner or with any level of moderation, what is true now is that I have two choices. I can drink way too much or not at all. When I drink too much, uh, I tend to break out in relational conflict and adultery. Some people break out in handcuffs. Some people break out in all these other things. Mm -hmm. That's what their allergy produces. Um, And so I've seen what drinking too much produces as a lifestyle. The other option I have is to drink not at all, in which case I get to enjoy the life that I have today. I get to be a present father. I get to be a growing and present husband. Uh, I get to participate in other people's restoration both through my job, which is as a pastor, uh, as well as um, just as a human being. You know, we love others because Jesus loved us first. So there's a lot of things that I do on a daily, weekly, monthly, yearly basis. They're not my job, but they're part of me loving those around me because that's what Jesus showed me. So that's kind of the flyover. It wasn't three minutes, but that sort of gives you the groundwork of where we're starting from um, and some of my background with addiction and a little bit of where it lands us today. So I think you know that kind of tees it up a little bit for maybe some more of the specifics.
0: No, thank you for sharing that. And I think if someone's listening to this and they're like, wow, He's so honest. Obviously, God has done so much in your, you and Jamie's marriage, mm-hmm. in your heart, in your restoration, and now you're able to help others through that. But as people are listening and they're like, wow, 25 to 30 drinks. Well, I, yeah. I, I, I or whatever you said, 15 to yeah. 20, I don't do that. Yeah. How, how it, Whether it's somebody listening or someone's loved one,
1: yeah.
0: how do you decide or how do you counsel people to say, okay, what's the difference between really like a bad habit
1: yeah. and an addiction? Totally.
0: What does that look like
1: yeah i think um it's different for everybody um some of those realities are physical some are emotional relational spiritual they all come from all these different places usually it's a concoction of all four but you know i'm a 220 pound male able to drink a tremendous amount of alcohol process through it i mean most of my drinking happened in my 20s i got sober at 27 So I always tell people I drank from 20 to 27. So I only drink from seven years, but I will drink the same amount of alcohol in my life that others did in theirs. I just compressed it in seven years. So the question I always, uh, well, the statement I always give people, because I get asked that question a lot. I mean, here's what I'm doing. Does it really, one, what they're telling me they're doing is usually 50% of what's actually going on in the background. Two, I always tell people it's not how much you drink or how frequently you drink. It's what happens when you put alcohol into your body. So there are people who they have three drinks and they start to just break out in an allergy. (laughs) It starts to go sideways for them. Um, So that's always a big thing. The other thing people are like, well, you know, it's, it doesn't always go bad. It's, and I always use the phrase again, none of this is mine. It's all stolen from recovery meetings. Um, I didn't get in trouble every time I drank, but every time I got in trouble, I'd been drinking. That's a really helpful concept for people when they go back and try and trace through because what will happen is they'll have a horrific night where just everything gets devastated, whether it's, hey, I I forgot where I was. I left the car somewhere. I've gotten a huge fight with my wife and punched through a door. There's all these different things that people do that you're like, whoa, you have a problem. But then the next three times they drink, it's a docile deal and it's not the end of the world. So they tend to focus on those stretches. This is what we do as addicts. We focus on the stretches, we glorify the short durations of okay. They're not great, they're okay. And we completely diminish the presence of the horrific. So that's just, we're great salespeople. That's Mm -hmm. kind of addiction is, is the deal. I'm always shocked by how many people in AA meetings and recovery settings are wildly successful people because their tolerance for pain is unimaginably high and their drive is unprecedented. Mm-hmm. So that's a really great combination for success when pointed in the right direction. Their motivations, their reliance, their coping skills are almost nil. Mm-hmm. So that's a little bit of like when you're if if you're in the spot where you're like this could be a problem. This could be the assessment tools aren't. Did I hit a number? Meaning, mm-hmm. did I hit a, a number of drinks? Um, a lot of people focus on the physical,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and so they'll focus on like. Why don't wake up every day shaking and sweating? Well, yet hmm. you can drive this thing right off the cliff, and eventually, particularly as you get older, your body has less physical ability to process. But the emotional and um, and the spiritual ties to alcohol continue to grow stronger and stronger. Hmm. And so, if you focus on the physical, you know that's got a shelf life. That's a perishable skill set to manage alcohol, but. If you look at desire, like people ask me all the time, do you miss drinking? No, I don't because it stopped working. So for all the reasons I just described, I don't want that life anymore. But what I do miss is the ability to check out. Mm. So for people you go, it's, it's as much, a, and this is why it requires rigorous honesty. It says that in the big book. It's, it's a life that requires rigorous honesty. If you're willing to go to any lengths to achieve sobriety or as the big book says, to have what we have. The rigorous honesty piece is, you've got to be honest with why you're going to alcohol. For me, I could feel an overwhelming, a euphoric sense of relief when all of a sudden I went, okay, help is on the way. Like I could put my first half a beer, which is typically what a swig was, I could put a half a beer in me
2: Mm.
1: and just feel it start to all melt away. But again, there's no break. So I'm going to keep going oh, because it just takes all the problems away mm. for a moment. Right. But the description I have and if this fits for people again it, this is, you know, I, I, anytime people sit down to talk to, with me about addiction, I'll tell them my my story, my experiences, my relationship to alcohol. And I'll say, "All right, here's the good news, bad news." The bad news is if you want to continue to drink the way you're drinking and your drinking looks like mine, I call myself an alcoholic. I'm very convinced that that's what I am. If your drinking looks like mine, you got to reason through that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: The good news is if your drinking looks like mine, there is a solution. Yeah. And so that tends to be the place where, hey, once you turn and face it, there's hope mm-hmm. because you can start walking to it through it. But there's always it's always easier to take another step down the staircase into chaos than it is to turn and face how far you've walked yeah. and start walking back out of it. And so those are some of the places where like when people are trying to identify, is this a problem, is this addiction, is this this, is this that, they have to be willing to be honest and um, and typically, again, high, high pain thresholds in most yeah. addicts, um, they they typically aren't going to make a change until the pain of where they are is greater mm-hmm. than the pain of where they'd have to go to get healthy. Yeah. So pain is a motivator. It's not the best motivator, but it is a motivator.
0: Right. So. And I think... It- one thing that you kind of alluded to is maybe it's not the number of drinks, but Mm-mm. you people could ask their loved ones around them and totally. say, Hey, is this causing relational issues? Is this cause you know, whether or not it's. A lot of drinks or a little. Is it causing issues in our marriage, work, whatever? I think that can be a litmus test too, right? Of like, is this becoming a dependency or a negative, like a bad coping skill for me? Should I be careful?
1: Totally. And I think the majority of my conversations actually happen with family members. Mm -hmm. And I always say addiction is harder on the family members than it is on the addict themselves Mm -hmm. because the addict is coping. They're checked out. They're experiencing a, a, a minority maybe even a vast minority, of their collateral damage because it's a very selfish disease. And selfishness is the only disease that affects everybody but the person who has it.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so as you
1: walk through those realities, the addict is relatively unaware and in denial. Yeah. So when you talk to – I just had a conversation a, a week or so ago with a gal who was like, hey, my husband's got a drinking problem. It's a challenge. And her current is, uh, you know, she'll sneak over and dump part of his drinks out or she'll try to do this or she'll kind of like mention, 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 but there's not really any boundaries in place. And so as we talked, one of the things that I I said was um, stop trying to change him because you're not. I mean, how long have you been? Oh, it's been like years, decades of trying to navigate this. Okay. Stop pouring drinks out. He's not going to respond to that. Stop mentioning it actually leave them completely alone and just talk about how it affects your heart
2: Mm -hmm.
1: now again i always tell people my advice is worth what you paid for it and i'm free (laughs) so i mean i'm not a clinical psychologist i'm not a trained counselor i'm a recovering addict i can tell you what worked for me cling to the lord and the only chance you really have of the lord changing your husband or your or your wife or whoever your son your daughter In this scenario is if the lord gets involved and changes a heart brings them to the end of themselves so the prayer that i always uh, submit to the family members of addicts is um pray that the lord brings them to the end of themselves and preserves their life Hmm. which is a horrifying thing to have to tell people because you're just sitting there going this is so far out of your control and none of us like to be out of control So when you walk into those situations, you know, submitting to this gal on the phone, Mm -hmm. you're going to have to get to a point where you really just kind of along for the ride. But that doesn't mean you have to get in the car with him. Right. So a healthy boundary could very well in that moment end up being, hey, you know what? You've had a couple of drinks probably before you got home. You've had a couple here. I'm going to go ahead and hop in the car. I'll meet you at the restaurant. He's got to deal with that reality. You know, like that's, hey, this is a, this is a boundary. I'm not going to put my life at risk because you're comfortable putting your life at risk. So I'm not going to bug you about your drinking, but I am going to let you know where my heart sits and just for her in particular, you know, addiction separates, Mm -hmm. it's an isolating disease. And so even for me, um, I'm a pretty gregarious, outgoing social person. By the time my drinking was at its worst, my best possible day was my wife was away and I had a fridge full of beer. What happened, you know? And I think one of the best analogies for addiction uh, that I've ever seen, kind of played out in uh, in the cinematic realm, would be the the picture of the Lord of the Rings, where it's like what the ring does to Gollum. This picture of takes this kind of fun little sweet hobbit and slowly but surely starts to dement him to the place where all he wants to do, completely disfiguring his physical form, is to be alone in the Misty Mountains with what's precious to him which is the ring Mm -hmm. it's the perfect picture of the deforming um disfiguring effect that in essence sin but really that addiction can have on us it it strips us of all of what we would use our gifts to do it isolates it contorts it you know just maladjusts and and so i think that's it And for this gal i was just saying you know he's gonna have to come to this conclusion on his own but if you set healthy boundaries to like articulate hey man we're nowhere near as close as we can be because outside of the physical there's some emotional safety that's just not here you know how hard this is on me and you're continuing to do it Mm -hmm. that has an impact on me and um i just i need you to know that that is communicating a lack of safety and security with you which as your wife is a foundational part of me connecting and relating to you as your, as your wife. Um, so as my husband, this is what I'm experiencing right now. Yeah. And you can do whatever you want with that information.
0: I love how you're talking about how as Christians and, and loved ones, we're not, our job is not to rescue people. Yeah, It's no. to love them. It's to show them grace, but there's boundaries in that. Mm-hmm. And that's what we talk about here at grace based families all the time. Totally. Right. It's yeah. like grace is not licensed to sin. No, but um, it's, ungrace to Mm -hmm. like (laughs) continue to allow this sin pattern without setting boundaries um, or to try to control another person
1: yeah full of grace and truth is the Mm -hmm. key concept and so i think for for a lot of people they get stuck in enabling you know what life's easier when i just make your life Kind of, you know, when you're happy, things and there's are that
0: happy. codependency cycle. Of, yeah, yeah, we're good if you're good, and if totally. I can keep you feeling all right and appease you, and and yeah, and it's very hard to get out of that.
1: It is because addicts are typically atmospheric captains, hmm. so they control the atmosphere, and they're very yeah. manipulative, and very and manipulative. so that's what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, I have the ability to come in and to completely blow my home up. Because if I start to get, because my addiction is still doing push-ups, trying to get back into my life. Mm-hmm. And as you've heard, I can overdo anything you put in front of me. So whether it's cookies or cocaine, I can or, run Jordans. real hard. yeah, Or, a shoe, <laughs> or shoes. a shoe addiction that my wife is not a fan of right now. So, but you can overcook any of those things. And mm-hmm. so um, because of that reality, when an addict is uncomfortable, they're going to come in and try and contort. They're going to mm-hmm. try and manipulate Half-truth is still part-truth, and so everybody ends up almost kind of having to adjust to the addict, Yeah, and families are reshaped, marriages are reshaped, uh, parental relationships are reshaped. Some of the people who struggle the most are people who are adult children of alcoholics Mm -hmm. because their childhood was so disfigured by the fact that the selfishness of an addiction turned them into the pseudo-parent. Right you know so that's a that's a horrific way to mm-hmm. to grow up and so if that's the case there is there's a um there's a recovery called adult children of alcoholics mm-hmm. acoa and um that's what they do they help people cope and basically come back to some realities of like you know um that's not normal
2: yeah
1: what what's not the way that you're describing that's not healthy but it's all you've ever known mm-hmm. There's a lot of validation and healing around understanding um, the forming effect that addiction can have on children um, when experienced by parents. Yeah. So
0: so much trauma there. Yeah. Um, one thing I want to hit on yeah. you were when you were describing your story and how you knew the Lord. You, you were... were raised in with wonderful believing parents, from what I understand. Yeah. Um, how <laughs> this is what I think sometimes. Christians struggle with and correct me if I'm wrong it's like how can he be a Christian yeah. and become an alcoholic how can yeah. he really truly know the Lord and maybe he's not trusting God enough totally maybe he's you know his faith isn't strong yeah. how do you talk people through that
1: I think we get into a game sometimes as believers where we kind of get into the sin classification game mm-hmm. um So to struggle with an anger problem for thirty years, um, that's palatable. That's understandable. Um, We explain it away. Um, To wrestle with an addiction uh, for forty years, uh, that's that's really that's not that that's not really an okay thing. And so we kind of get into this place where we go, well, you can be a Christian and do that. You can't be a Christian and do that. And I I get it. There's there's some realities that it's hard. I I understand it. One of the greatest things I'm, I'm so grateful for the fact that salvation belongs to the Lord, because in my story, you look at it and you go, okay, here's a guy, this this is pretty gnarly. And I, I, again, there are people out there who would say, uh, Rustin wasn't saved until the bathroom floor, you know, when he woke up and truly gave his life to the Lord, that's when he was saved. To be honest, gang, if I get to heaven and that's what he says, hey, this is when you were saved. You were mine when you tr- truly turned your entire life over. I'm not going to argue with him. And, and nor do I think that's wrong. I, I've got a total category for that. What I have felt like is, because there's nothing for me in this. You know, it's like, hey, this is just my story. It's my past. I can tell you um, through my childhood, particularly into my junior high years, I had a connection to the Lord. I had a desire to please God. I had moments where he was moving me and we did um, unbelievably sweet things together. Um, And and again, we've all got to wrestle with that verse. You know, some of you prophesied in my name. Some of you have cast out demons and depart from me. I never knew you. So there's always that haunting verse that we have to wrestle with. But I would tell you, um, you know, Confess with your lips, believe in your heart is a bar that I certainly surpassed. Um, what I think is is quite likely for me is the fact that um, I was, in my view, probably saved as a kid and gave the Lord every single thing I had. But based on the way that I coped and understood some of my realities, um, I went on a 10-year prodigal son journey that was pretty horrific and damaged a lot of people's lives, including my own. But it is that moment where you go, did the son stop being the son when he left to prodigal? And you go, no, he was still the son. Um, Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until he hit bottom in a pig trough where he went, I I need to come home. And I came home and um, the Lord welcomed me with open arms and i had to deal with all the consequences of my sin so that's the really tricky part where's the line between backsliding and um having never really had a connection because the reality of fruit showing up in our lives is one of the things that we're pointed toward in the scriptures hey a healthy faith is producing fruit but when you go through a dormant season and there's no fruit does it mean the tree was never alive does it mean that there was never a connection you know i'm weaving a bunch of metaphors but the john 15 where you never really connected to the vine and um i would say i had seasons of fruit and what felt like very much a connection to the vine of of the lord and um and i went through seasons where there wasn't a lot of fruit and i'm totally okay with like a, a heavily heavily reformed theology would be like that was too much backsliding so um i don't think you were saying it's fine i'm not gonna argue with that individual Um, I think we'll, I think we're always pretty surprised by the grace of God. Mm -hmm. So I'm okay with either. Um, I do think Christians can do some, some pretty gnarly things, Mm -hmm. um, while belonging to the Lord. And I think we try to whitewash the sin game a little bit to kind of come up with a classification system. Mm -hmm. And, um, again, if, if that's where you are, that's totally fine. If, um, being saved on the bathroom floor is what fits for you, that's Mm -hmm. great. Um, and I, I think uh, the Lord can work in some pretty mysterious yeah. ways there. So.
0: One thing I appreciate, like we were talking about this um, earlier, is taking the stigma away. Mm-hmm. You know, I know when you uh, preach at um, your church, you are very honest about your, your addiction and your mm-hmm. struggle. And I think that normalizes it because I think sometimes Christians can have this pious, self-righteous sure. lens that they're like, oh. I don't know anybody who's an alcoholic, right. like drunks, homeless people. They right. put them in a different category or, or yeah. drug addiction. We're not just talking specifically about alcohol either. And I think, I mean, I, I pulled the stats here. 46 million people mm-hmm. have the criteria of having a substance abuse disorder yeah. in the United States. Yeah. So chances are we know someone right. or love somebody who is struggling mm-hmm. with addiction. And
1: Well, and that's what's known.
0: Right. That's what's reported. Exactly. (laughs)
1: Which is is a shocking thing based on the stigma that you described. Um, I do. I think um, I just did this in a sermon recently, but for, you know, however long the church's foundational character trait that it looks for in any of its leaders has always been morality. Mm -hmm. And so what you're seeing is particularly in people kind of our age, uh, mine and yours and below You're seeing this shift away from morality and towards authenticity. This authenticity thing is really tricky because now the church is vulnerable to something different. Um, Holiness is still a thing. I did this in a holiness sermon by just saying morality doesn't necessarily guarantee authenticity and authenticity does not guarantee morality. It has to be both. You have to have the authenticity to admit that there are things in your life that require holiness and growth in that direction. And holiness without authenticity becomes a Pharisaical legalism, which we've all grown up around. yeah A lot of people who look great sound great, um, but their lives are a mess. And so authenticity brings a freshness to the church and to the way that it functions where you can sit down and even you know as recent as two weeks ago, hey guys,'m I'm, I'm a mess. The reason I'm up here preaching is because I spent 20 hours this week studying this passage, but I'm with you guys on a lot of these things, and many of the things that I preach on I will tell the church. This is biblical. Uh, it is 100% true and it is 100% aspirational for me cuz I'm not good at it. And the best f- phrase in the big book that I just love is we claim spiritual progress, not spiritual perfection. Mm-hmm. It's permission to be broken and to continue to be restored.
0: Yeah. That's wonderful. You know, for you mentioned this for Christians there's a lot of shame and guilt that mm-hmm. um, comes from addiction and and that can lead to hopelessness totally. which you felt on the bathroom floor and I think this was a good reminder that even Christians that know and love the Lord and have a true relationship with him can fall into temptation. Totally. And just for us to realize that that doesn't make someone less of a, of a believer. And it actually opens us up to realize like, we're all powerless. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And we need the Lord and we need his grace and we need others. Yeah. And um, we can begin a successful journey towards restoration and towards healing and towards a lasting recovery, Um, but it can't be done alone.
1: No, and I think that's one of the things that um, is so critical is, in order to get out of a guilt and shame cycle, you know, guilt says what I did was wrong, shame says who I am is wrong. Mm -hmm. I think the longing of the enemy with anybody is to identify them as their sin. It's not that you lied, you're a liar. It's not that you were angry, you're an angry person. It's not that you're, you had a fearful moment, it's that you're a fearful person. It's an identification with our shortcomings. So for the addict, usually it's, I'm such a miserable fill-in-the-blank failure that I, I just, I'm a failure, I'm a failure, I fail everything. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy that starts to you know continue to come to fruition. As that starts to unfold, the stigma of guilt and shame, I mean, I think it was the character in the Austin Powers movie, Um, who said I eat because I'm unhappy and I'm unhappy because I eat. It's just, it's true of everything. I You know, I drink and it makes me unhappy and I'm unhappy and I drink and I... So this cycle is only broken when you sit down in a place where you go, I have a radical drinking problem. Someone goes, you fit right in. Mm -hmm. And then finally, when that is sort of erased... You now have this place where you can heal in a community of healing people. So it starts to take that stigma away. And the guilt and the shame piece um, can start to take a background. And you can actually start to move into, people say all the time, like, well, don't you think you're kind of speaking a curse over your life to say that you're an alcoholic? Mm-hmm. And I said, um, I think the bigger curse would be to say, hey, I'm Rustin Rosello and I'm fine. hmm Because that brought with it some sort of a thing that, like, I didn't have a problem. Now, when I admit, no, this is me and I have a chemical limitation in my life, look at what my life gets to become. I get to actually live a free and sober life that allows me enough bandwidth and enough clarity and enough cognitive space to actually be present. Mm -hmm. That's actually a huge blessing. What I'm telling people is I have the power And the fortitude to admit that I have a limitation. Mm -hmm. If you can't admit you have a limitation, um, you're going to continue to bump into it over and over again. So I think those are the places where you start to see guilt and shame come apart because community is key. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times I'll tell people like, they'll come to me, they'll say, hey, I've, I've tried AA before, it hasn't worked. And again, there's a bunch of different ways to get sober. So I'm not saying this is the only way, I'm just saying it was my way. And they'll say, yeah, I've tried it before. And I go, well, did you go to meetings? Yeah, I went to a few. Okay. Did you get a sponsor? Did you work the steps? Did you create a sober lifestyle? No. Okay. That would be like you coming to me and saying, hey, I have cancer. We caught it early. It's prostate cancer. It's stage one. You go, oh, gosh, great. We caught it early. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Go to Mayo. They're going to get you into a place. They're going to get you some help. And you come back a year and a half later and you go, and I have stage four prostate cancer. You go, oh, gosh, like what happened here? Yeah. And the person goes, I go, you know, hey, did you go to Mayo? Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, did you see a doctor? What'd your oncologist say? I didn't, I didn't see an oncologist. Oh, okay. Well, did you have surgery? No. Okay. What did you do? Well, I I went and um, they had these really awesome walking paths around the hospital and I walked on them every stinking day and it was beautiful and I had great time and it felt really peaceful, but um, this is where I am. And I always tell people like, there's a difference between being around a program of recovery and being in a program mm-hmm. of recovery. You gotta go in and you gotta do the work. Mm-hmm. You gotta talk about what specifically it's looked like. You've gotta do some of the things that most programs include some sort of step work, whether it's 12 or whatever. It, even recovery centers will do the deep dive into what did your addiction look like? Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like, you know, the program kind of breaks into three parts. no God, clean house, carry the message steps one through four, no God, you know, steps one through three, no God, four through nine, clean house, um, 10, 11 and 12 carry the message. So for me, the cleaning house was going in and doing the work, putting down on paper, all of the horrible things that I had done or that I was resentful about, or that I, and then after making a fearless searching moral inventory, I sat down with someone else, admitted to myself, to God and to another human being that the exact nature of my wrongs. That is such a freeing process, though it is terrifying to partake in. If people aren't willing to do that work, you're kind of walking the paths around a recovery. You're not actually going in and doing the deep surgical work Mm -hmm. to allow yourself to be restored from the prison that addiction creates. So I think that process is is really key as people look at, what do we do next?
0: Yeah, so. um, that's really helpful. Thank you so much, Rustin, for sharing your story and for being an encouragement to people, whether they're walking through this personally and they're struggling with it or if one of their loved ones yeah. is. So continue to do the work that you're doing. So thanks for being here. You bet.
1: Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Grace Space Family Podcast. This is part of Family Matters Ministry. For more information, check us out at GraceBaseFamilies.com and follow us on Instagram and Facebook.
0: Until next time...